We're going to finish the little series on 2 Peter with the promises. So if you would turn to 2 Peter, and then we're going to go to Romans 4 again. 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll pray first. Father, we just ask you, Lord, I just ask you that you'll be here with us and you'll speak to our hearts and encourage us to exercise the faith that you've given us, Lord, and and, uh, that you'll open our understanding to see you, have a knowledge of you, exercise the faith you've given us, Lord, and to partake of these precious and great promises that you've given us. And we just thank you that you'll be here with us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these, these promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So we've been talking about these exceeding great and precious promises that God's given to his children. Now we need to make sure we understand he's not given, those promises aren't given to the world, except the promise of salvation if they'll respond to that, right? But only the ones who have through the new birth, have gained a right to the inheritance that's promised to the children of God. And I'm saying that is a true honor and a privilege that we've been given, and we shouldn't take it lightly, because those promises are called exceedingly great, or magnificent would be another word, magnificent and precious promises. And we need to not just lightly you know, read over those words that are there. That's no small thing. So really then, the crucial, the crucial question that you have to ask yourself then is, am I a child of the King? Is Jesus truly my Lord and Savior? And not just in name only, not just I said a prayer when I was nine, but he really isn't my Lord and Savior that I'm trusting and walking with every day. And have you been washed in his blood? Have you repented of your sins? And do you follow him? I'm saying it's that simple if it is that simple, okay? And that's the question you have to ask, those questions or questions. And if the answer is yes, then what the Bible tells us is we have a divine right. God has given us a right to, it's estimated anywhere you read books, anywhere from 3,000 up to, some will go as high as 10,000 promises. I'm like, does it really matter? I mean, there's a promise there for any need we'll have. But it's at least 3,000 promises We God has given us a right to. And a promise is saying that is something he assures us that he will do for us as long as our hearts are right. So, you know, this Bible, this book, it's written to us because what are we here? We really are pilgrims and strangers. And, you know, we need to keep that in our mindset because it's so easy to get caught up into this is our home. We want to get the most out of it. We want to make the most of it. And we really need to keep that mindset because this is what we read in Hebrews 11 of all the great people of faith. That was their mindset. They embraced the promises, but they embraced them as pilgrims and strangers on this earth. And Peter says this because I'm telling you, you go out in this world, you go on vacation and you see what people are like. Really, as a Christian, what is there really to love about this world? I'm not talking about taking a hike in the woods or doing something with, you know, I'm talking about the sin that's permeating everything. It's just permeating everything. And so Peter reminds us, we're not looking at 2 Peter 3, we're looking at 2 Peter 1, 
But in 2 Peter 3.13, he says, we, according to his promise, we're talking about these great promises. It says, we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's none too much of that dwelling here in this present world, all right? But until that time, until we get there to that new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells, God has promised what? We just read it. He's promised to give us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, what we need to get through this life. Because we desperately need His presence, His help to maneuver ourselves in this wicked world. And and I was thinking about it. That's what, isn't that really what Ephesians 6 and Paul talking about the armor of God is telling us? He says, you need above all things God's strength, His power, and His army. He says to be able to stand to be one of the few that are left standing because it will only be a few relative to the rest of the world that are left standing, right? And he says, you need to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might and to put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand the onslaught of the enemy that's coming our way. So it's not for men, and that's what we tend to think things are, right? We're overcoming men and people and attitudes and things they're doing to us. And Paul says, no, there's something behind that. It's influencing men, influencing their philosophy, that's bringing this peer pressure on us to compromise. And he says that it's coming our way from principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. I mean, there is a demonic force that is out to take us down. It, it truly is taking place. Second Timothy 3 tells us, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. That is a promise just as much as any other promise, isn't it? Now, that's not one we like to rejoice in and throw our Bibles in the air, but it's a promise. And I'm saying we're in those days. They're just beginning. The trees are budding. But I'm saying the only way, my point is, the only way we're going to be able to overcome the days that are ahead is through what he's telling us here. These exceedingly great and precious promises. So we have to know what God has promised us. And we're only going to know that if we read his word and we have to hide it in our heart, don't we? Because promises like this, Psalm 91, one we know, but do we read it very much? A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but God promises it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because he says you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. The promise is if you've done that, you've made God your refuge, the most high, where you dwell, where you live. The promise is then that no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you. To keep you in all of your ways. I mean, that's a tremendous promise. No plague will come nigh your dwelling. No evil shall befall you. Or take Psalm 46 where he says, God is our refuge and strength. God is a very present help in trouble. Therefore, because of that, the psalmist writes, we will not fear. Even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled and though the mountains shake with its swelling. He's saying no matter how bad it gets, if you're one of God's children, he is a very present help. He'll be there with you in time of trouble. Therefore, he says, we will not fear because we know that that's those are tremendous promises and on and on you could go. And so 
The truth is, the truth that we have to see, that we have to have our eyes and our understanding enlightened to see, is what makes certain the fulfillment of all these promises that God has given us. It's right there if you'll look in 2 Peter 1 in verse 3. He says, as His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's His divine power that backs up every one of those promises that He's made. And that's why we're back again to the prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, that our spiritual eyes, one of the three things he prays, the last thing is that our eyes would be open to see the surpassing greatness of His power Toward us who believe. Or another translation says, the incomparable greatness, incomparable greatness of the power towards us. And we really truly have to see that. There is an incomparable power that will come our way if we believe and we seek the Lord. (laughs) That's no small thing. So here's the thing the devil has power. We talked about that two weeks ago, right? He really does. And it is soon going to be on display for all the world to see through the Antichrist. I mean, they are going to be in awe and they are going to be following him. The world is going to be in such a condition that this is the guy that will meet all of our needs, apparently, is the way it's going to be. And it says about him in 2 Thessalonians 2, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. And it says, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception. So the devil has real power, doesn't he? It's being exhibited right now in the earth. I mean, that power is also exhibited in all the sickness he brings in, all the demonic activity that takes place. But just like the magicians of Egypt, you know, we don't have to fear his power, do we? We don't have to live in fear of the devil's power and what he can do and, oh, he can overcome me and what can I do about that? Because it's still true, the simple promise that we have heard for years and years and years, and that is, that greater is he that is in me and you than whom? He that is in the world and all the things he does and tries to afflict us with. It's still true. So despite all the circumstances that we face and others face that seem to contradict what God promises, his divine power ensures that what God has spoken will come to pass. Amen. It will, if we'll trust him. So Abraham, you know, we talked, started to talk last time, he said he's given as the great example of how faith in the promises of God will bring to us the believer's inheritance, our inheritance. And he's called the father of the faith or the father of those who have faith, the father of the faithful. And the way he exercised faith in that promise of God applies to all 3,000 promises that God has given us, whether it's justification, which is we're going to look at in Romans 4. That's what it talks about. That's what his faith brought to him. Or whether it's healing, guidance, the Holy Spirit, forgiveness, deliverance, whatever it is you need, these principles applied. So if you would turn back to Romans 4, which is where we were a couple weeks ago. So, you know, Romans 4, the context of that is it's showing how faith principles apply for Abraham to believe God for the promise of the seed. And not only his natural seed, Isaac, but also the seed of the Messiah, how his salvation would come. Because Jesus said that Abraham told, he told the Jews, Jesus told the Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. 
And it says Abraham believed the Lord. He believed that promise and it was counted to him as righteousness, as his justification. And so he tells us here in Romans 4 that the same thing applies to us. Look in verse 22. Therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Verse 23, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So faith in the same promise will justify us just like it did Abraham, but it will also bring us all of what God promises. And so we said last time there's five principles of faith that we see here in the life of Abraham in Romans chapter 4. And the first one we talked about is that faith is a gift that God gives. It's not naturally in us. And that faith enabled Abraham to believe what appeared to be impossible. And it was impossible apart from God and his divine power. Because as we said, nobody in their right mind could believe that a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old wife could bear a son. And that could only happen where someone could believe that through God's grace that gives faith. And we quoted Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. We need to clearly see faith is not something that is naturally in us. We're generating ourselves. We're dependent on God for the faith that is given to us to believe him for salvation. And he has to sustain that faith the whole time until the end. It's never a matter of our willpower got us through. And I think we sometimes think it is. I just got to try harder you know, and believe harder. It's not that. It's God's grace. It's not a matter of willpower. And he gives us the faith to believe But we do have to exercise it. So faith comes by hearing the word, God opening the heart. And believers, us, we have to respond to what he has provided. Our eyes are open to see that. We have to respond to that and start exercising the faith he's given us. Now listen, not not everybody can believe God for supernatural promises. And that's what all the promises are. They're supernatural provisions. That God Almighty is doing because unbelievers, they can't exercise faith in that. They can't. It's impossible. Impossible for them to. So it's only by His grace that we're enabled to trust Him. And all of us that are in here that are believers were expected to trust Him. And why is that? So do we remember the verse in Romans 12, 3? He's given to everyone that's a believer a measure of faith. That's what it says. Romans 12, 3, God has dealt to each one, that means each believer, a measure of faith. And so we're responsible for that measure of faith that's been given to us to use it. It doesn't matter how small that we think our faith is. He goes on to say in Romans 12, 6, a few verses later, he says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. So you say, man, I can't stand up and say, thus saith the Lord and ramble on like some people can for five or 10 or 20 or 30 minutes. But I can't do that. But God's given me a word. And maybe you can say two sentences that he's given you if that's where your faith is at. Right. But he's saying the bottom line is, he says, you got to use it in proportion to your faith. The point is, that I think the word from beginning to end teaches that is that we as Christians and believers are not to sit on our amazing grace. We're to exercise faith, to 
to trust the Lord. So he's given us all faith as a gift to believe the supernatural. I mean, you're believing something supernatural to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, a, a uh, humble, nothing carpenter, is God himself, was raised, a dead man was raised, no one's seen that happen, was raised from the dead after being stone cold dead for three days, and is now the Lord of the universe, and is going to raise you up from the dead. That's what you're believing if you're a Christian. And that he is Lord, has been given all power in heaven and earth. That's, I'd say that's supernatural. If you, some people believe it up here, and that's not the faith we're talking about. It's the faith that can, can commit themselves to that Lord for all that he shows us to be. So, it's a supernatural gift we have to use. So I'd say if you're struggling or you're fearful, said it last time, pray that God will open your eyes to his power, to his willingness, and pray for the grace to hold on and trust him. So he'll help you to do that, no matter what it is you're trusting him for. And a lot of times it's a battle and it's not easy, is it? And that's why we have Hebrews 4.16, another great promise that says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find the grace to help in time of need. And in essence, isn't that what the, the man that had the epileptic boy, isn't that, in essence, that what he did? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. I need your grace to help me. I'm struggling with this. I don't have it in me to trust you, but I know you're, my, you're the answer to my problem. And did Jesus turn him away? He helped him. We know that, right? And so we see right there that promise in Hebrews 4.16 put into practice. So here's the thing. It's easy to just get out of trials. But God never said it would be easy, did he? Never said that. But he said that all things are possible to him that believes by connecting yourself up to his power. And the second principle we saw was that all Abraham needed was the bare word of God and nothing else. Look in verse 18. Nothing else, I should say. I came from the East Coast. I ought to speak better than that. Look what it says in verse 18. It says, Who contrary to hope, in hope believed that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. Here's what he had. So shall your descendants be. And it says in Genesis 15, when that word, so shall your descendants be, that simple message was spoken to Abraham. It said that Abraham believed in the Lord. He believed in the Lord. He didn't just believe that he existed. He regarded him as someone who was reliable, someone who was dependable. That's what it means when he said he believed in the Lord. When I say I believe in James Martin, when he tells me something, what I'm saying is James Martin tells me he's going to do the prayer meeting last Wednesday night. I'm telling you, I didn't lose one minute's sleep over the fact that he might not show up or he might not do that. Because I'm saying when I believe in him, I'm saying I can count on him. He's reliable. He's giving me his word, his promise. And that's what Abraham did. So part of that is you walk with the person, you know a person, you see how they are. And that's what Abraham had done with God. He'd experienced his faithfulness. And so at the point God makes him this unbelievable promise of a son in his old age, he knew that we said he could count on three things about the Lord. He could count on his truth, the truthfulness of anything he said that God would not lie. He could count on his love and his concern and his care for him. And that's a big thing. We sometimes think, man, he just doesn't really seem to care about me that much. 
And the other thing was, he knew that God had the power that he could back up anything he said that he would do. Those two, three things, his truth, his love, his power. And I said, that's what the Roman centurion saw in the Lord Jesus Christ. All he needed, all he needed was a word. That's the second point here. Just a bare word from the one who exercised. He saw not just earthly power like he had, but divine heavenly power with authority. That's all you need is a word from someone like that. Because whatever Jesus, when we read, you think about this in the New Testament, whatever he spoke came to pass. And the reason for that is, is his word contains power. So when he said to the leper who came up to him, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He said, I am willing, be cleansed and touched him. That was the end of it right then, wasn't it? When he said that, when he told the paralytic that came with the four men that were brought to him, take up your bed, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. That word contained power and that's what happened. He arose, he obeyed, he arose. That faith was sparked in his heart through that word. And he obeyed and man, his legs were made perfect. Whatever was wrong with him, his legs, his back, who knows? It doesn't really matter. And when he's out there in that storm and it's raging, and when he says the words, peace be still, the next thing you read was, there was a great calm. So his words contain power. When a man with a withered hand, when he tells that man, stretch forth your hand and he obeys, it happens. That guy's not left like that, is he? Nobody is. His word had power. So listen, when he tells us, this is a word he's given us in Mark 16, these signs, these are the, this is the Lord Jesus Christ said this, these signs shall follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. Guess what then? If we're a believer in his name, we can cast a demon out and it has to obey. That's his word, isn't it? That's what he's told us. And he also said they will speak with new tongues. That's the sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You ask him for that. He says he's not going to give you a rock. He's not going to give you a scorpion. He will give you the Holy Spirit. And you will be able, if you exercise faith, to speak in new tongues as the sign that you've received the Holy Spirit. And will also edify you, help you. You can pray for people. There's a lot of reasons for it. So why would you not want it? Why would you want to argue about that you don't need it or you don't want it? And the last thing he says is, in my name, this is the word, the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. In my name, you will lay hands on the sick and they sometimes recover. He says they will recover when you, in his name, lay hands on the sick. That's the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will come to pass just as much as when he spoke to the paralytic, the leper, the man with the withered hand, told Lazarus to come out of there. It will work. If we exercise faith, we have to trust him for that. There's power in those words. Our hearts just have to be clean, don't they? We have to have clean hearts. The third thing we see here in Romans 4 with Abraham is we have to trust the bare word of God when all hope seems gone. That's what Abraham did. And we'll read that again, that verse 18 again. It says, who contrary to hope, in hope believed so that he became the father of of many nations, contrary to hope. The word hope there doesn't mean like when we say, I hope something happens. I'm not sure. No, it means an expectation, something I can expect to happen. And I'm saying there was nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing in Abraham's circumstances that would give him any expectation of a baby, was there? 
What expectation, without a word from God, what expectation would you give a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman that say they want a baby? I give him this much expectation. And he said, against that, contrary to that expectation, he shouldn't have had any expectation. It says, contrary to hope, contrary to what the circumstances demanded, it says that Abraham believed in the hope or expectation of having a baby. So against that, what he should have expected, he expected it. And why was that? Because of what it says, look in verse 17. It says, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Because here it is, he stood in the presence of God. In the presence of him whom he believed. And here's how he believed it. Because God, Abraham knew this, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. That's how he had hope when all hope should have never been there in the natural, right? So our God is a God, and this is a great thing, isn't it? He is a God that gives us hope in hopeless situations. Uh, Man, we run across hopeless situations that are both small and great, don't we? I mean, small in the sense of it can be a domestic situation. It could be even something in your own personality. It's like, do I have any hope of ever changing? Because it seems like it just doesn't happen. And I'm saying something as small as that to something as great as kneeling, needing a miracle, a healing miracle. God gives hope in hopeless situations. And I would say, are you in the middle of one, whoever you are? So in Acts 27, we talked about this. Paul, he's being taken to Rome on a ship with a lot of prisoners. They get caught in a storm. It went on for so long and it was so bad. So many days and that storm wasn't letting up. It was so bad. It says that all hope that we should be saved was finally given up. Finally given up. A hopeless situation. Everybody gave up but one man, Paul. And why was that? Because he had a word from God. That's all he had was a word from God. Circumstances weren't giving him any encouragement. But that is all that mattered to him. Because it didn't matter to Paul what anything looked like. He knew that God could just totally change that circumstances in a minute. And he said this to these men. He says, for there stood by me this night an angel of the Lord to whom I belong. And that's the key. The angel of, of God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men. Paul says, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. So the word of God was contrary to anything they could see, any hope, any expectation. And it gave an expectation. God's word gave Paul an expectation that was against all reason, all logic, all experience, all common sense. And yet, Because of who God is, because of his divine power, because you can trust in his work, it happened exactly as he said. It just came to me. I I remember George Mueller. He was told he was going to go preach and he had to be there on a certain day. And he's on this ship and they're out in the ocean. There is no wind. Hadn't been any wind, no sign of wind. And the captain is like, you're not going to make it to your preaching engagement. And George Mueller said, no, I will be there. God will get me there. And he knelt down and prayed right in front of that captain who was laughing. And before he got, I believe it's something like either before he got up off his knees or shortly thereafter, all of a sudden this wind comes from nowhere and whatever. And off they go. And he made his preaching engagement. And man, if that wasn't a testimony of faith, you always hear about his orphan houses. 
I always thought that was a tremendous testimony. But the circumstances sure didn't make it look like it. But is God bound to circumstances? Not with his power, he's not. Not when he created everything there is. He's his unlimited power. And that is hard to understand and believe a lot of times, isn't it, for us? Because we're not conditioned that way. And that's where getting in the Word will help us. Or how about in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, we don't, he says to them, he goes, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. When Paul said he despaired even of life, that word despaired means to renounce all hope, to be utterly at a loss. He's like, I'm not seeing anything going on in my body and how I'm feeling, all of this. Another translation said this, Indeed, we felt as if the sentence of death had been passed against us. He's saying, I felt like the death sentence was on me. And it doesn't get any worse than that, does it? That's what Paul says. And yet, you know, here's the thing. God gets you to that point in your life, no matter what it is, right? You can trust in your, your trust in yourself, is what I'm saying, is completely gone, isn't it? Your circumstances, there's nothing there to encourage you at all. And God... He's bringing Paul to that point. He's bringing us to that point. He's the only one you can trust in. And it says he is the one. This is what Abraham saw. He is the one who has the power to raise the dead. And Paul says he did that to me. I was as good as dead. And he came down and raised me up. Thought I had a sentence of death in me. And he says he did it in the past. He's doing it now. And I trust he will do it in the future. Amen. That's the God we serve. So that was all of what we talked about last time. I tried to shorten it up and throw a few new things in there. But if you're like me, I can hear something two weeks later. I can hear the exact same thing again. Be a lot of it would be new. But the fourth thing, so we got two more things, two more principles. The fourth thing we see is that Abraham was fully convinced, fully convinced that what God said would happen, would happen. And that's in verse 21. Look what it says in verse 21 here. It says, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he, God, was able also to perform. So true faith always has an element, this element of certainty. So the King James says being fully persuaded. The New American Standard says being fully assured. The NET translation says he was fully convinced. They all mean the same thing. Persuaded, convinced, assured. And the Greek word where they're getting that from is pleroferio, and it means, that word means to fill up completely. This fully persuaded means fill up completely. There's no room for anything else. And so in the context that it's given in the New Testament, it means to achieve complete certainty. So you're not wondering anymore. Your heart is settled. It's settled in my heart. God is faithful. That's where Abraham got to. So that exact same word for fully persuaded is used in Romans 14.5. And it says this in Romans 14.5, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. And Paul says, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. 
That's the same word, fully convinced, fully persuaded. In other words, don't be wavering. Some think one way, some think another. Whichever way you take, you need, he's saying, to be fully convinced, fully persuaded, completely filled that this is the right way. That's what he's saying there. Don't waver. Whatever you decide, be fully convinced that it's right. Because at the end of that chapter 14 that we've heard a lot about, Paul writes, He who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. So doubt or wavering is the opposite of being fully persuaded or convinced. So faith is what? It's fully persuaded or convinced of what? Look at verse 21. What does it say there? It says, And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. So true faith, here's the thing, true faith or real faith, it's not walking down the street on a dark night, whistling a happy tune, trying to talk yourself into thinking that everything's going to be all right, but deep down in your heart, you're sure you're going to get mugged and die. That's not what faith is. No, true faith has a certainty about it. God has not only promised, because we can all read the promise, right? He's not only promised, I can see that, but he's also able to fulfill that promise. He has the power, the truthfulness, and the love to fulfill it, and that he will fulfill it for me, being fully persuaded of that. And there's many examples in the Bible of this certainty that we could give. In Mark 5, we had the case of a woman with the issue of blood. Now, I'll tell you what she had grown uncertain of. And that is her many physicians. For it says she had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Let me ask you, do you think it's possible to grow worse in trusting a doctor? I do, because I've seen it. Recently, I've seen it. I think it's very possible. That's what the Bible says. I was just quoting what it said. But then it goes on to say, when she heard of Jesus... She's growing worse with those physicians. But when she heard of Jesus, what is it that she heard? She heard about his healing miracles that were taking place. She had a knowledge that his power was being demonstrated in her day. In her day. Not like it happened years back, and I hope it happens in the future. But for me right now, I'm not seeing anything happen. Uh, It was in her day because she had heard. Here's what she heard. She heard what had happened if you read Mark 5 talks about her, the woman with the issue of blood. But two chapters earlier, this is what she heard in Mark 3.10. She heard, for he healed many. He healed many so that as many as had afflictions pressed upon him to touch him. She heard that. She heard the report is out. Wow, anybody that's got a problem, all they have to do is get close enough to him to touch him and they're healed. It's as good as done. And she's asking, is that really? Oh, yeah, it happened. Remember such and such? She had this really, really bad case of whatever. Real bad skin. It totally cleared up like that. All she had to do was touch him. And this woman's hearing that. And she's like, well, look, I'm spending all this money over here. They're bankrupting me, and I'm just getting sicker by the minute. And here this man, he has no failures. Jesus had no failures. It's happening every time. She heard those testimonies. And you know what? That caused her to be fully convinced or persuaded or assured of what he would do for her. 
Read the account because this is what it says. It says when she heard about Jesus, when she heard like what I said in Mark 3, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment for she said this. Now this for she said is in the imperfect tense. That means it was an ongoing thing she's saying to herself over and over. If I only may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. That's what she said. There wasn't any uncertainty there with this woman. She didn't say, oh, if I touch him, I hope it works. Or maybe I'll get lucky. No, her confession, it came from her heart. And when it says in the imperfect tense, if I can only touch him, I'm saying I can just picture her trying to fight her. If you've ever been in a crowd and you're trying to jostle your way through it to get somewhere, I can see her just talking to herself. I can just get to him. Excuse me, please. You know, would you get out of the way? And she's she's making her way there. And she's saying, I can if I can just get to him. Keeps telling her, I will be made well if I touch him. She's not wondering about that part of it. It's just a matter of her pressing on in past her circumstances and getting there, isn't it? That's all it is. And here she says, I'm just may, I may just have to get a little violent and take this by force. Isn't that somewhere in the Bible? Kingdom of God suffers violence. And I mean, she might have just kind of wedged in. She might have got her elbows working out sideways, right? Like, I'm tired of getting elbows. I'm going to give a few here because I need what he's got. And that's what has to happen sometimes. Press in and touch him. And she says, I shall, not I might or I hope I will. I shall be made well. She was convinced, wasn't she? Or what about the spirit of Abraham that said, we read it in there, what God has promised he was able also to perform. The Bible tells us that same spirit was in Joshua and Caleb. So 10 of the the spies, they sent 12 of them out. 10 of them, they got the people all upset with their report. And their report was, we went to the land where you sent us. And they said, it truly flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. But then they come in with that, nevertheless, nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. So listen, it's not a problem with what they said and saw. That was all true. All 12 of them would agree with that report right there. The land is just like the Lord said it. And their inhabitants there are big and ugly and bad and they'll kill us. Well, I don't know about the kill us part, but big, bad and ugly. The difference was what? It wasn't in the report. It wasn't in what they saw with their eyes. The difference was, as Daryl was talking about last week, what was in their hearts. That was the difference. Because Caleb said this. He's like, wait a minute. Everybody must have been murmuring, talking loud. If you've ever been in a crowd based on what those guys had said. And it says he had to quiet the crowd down. And Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Here's what Caleb said. Let's go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb was fully persuaded, just like Abraham. He says, we are well able to overcome. And here's the thing. He saw what the Lord did in Egypt. And here's the difference between him and all these other people is he didn't forget. They forgot. It's like the whole thing about what have you done for me today, Lord? Well, he did all that back then, and Caleb and Joshua remembered it. And they knew that based on that, they could trust him in the future, right? But the people of Israel, here's what was in their heart. This is what they said. If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? What an accusation. 
God has brought us out out of Egypt. God Almighty, in His love and grace and fear, has brought us out here, and they're accusing Him of setting them up to make them victims. That's a hard accusation they gave, isn't it? So sometimes, though, we've got to battle those thoughts that it seems like, man, I've heard this message, so I've heard these promises, all these things that will happen, and sometimes I feel like I'm being set up as a victim. <laughs> and, you know, all the promises that are so exciting when you first hear about them of, of deliverance and healing and guidance and all, it just seems to melt in the reality of the situation. But one thing here is, so some people... The older people would know this, maybe some of the younger ones, maybe we all need to be reminded. But one thing the Bible does not teach is Christian science. So we don't act like the circumstances we're facing that they don't exist, do we? Because look at verse 19, look what it says. It says, Abraham, not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Now, when you read that in the King James, it gives the impression that Abraham refused to look at his circumstances. That he just, I just, why am I going to look at it? Like they don't even exist. That's not really in almost every other translation besides King James and New King James. It doesn't have the, he did not consider. It says he did consider. Now, if you want to say he didn't consider in the sense he saw what was going on and he wasn't going to sit there and linger on him, that's fine. Either way, I don't care. But the, but the bottom line is, we know from Genesis 17, Abraham did consider his circumstances and Sarah's circumstances. Because it says in Genesis 17 that Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old and shall Sarah who is 90 years old bear a child. So here's the point I'm trying to make is Abraham didn't deny his circumstances. He didn't deny him. He didn't try to say, yeah, you may think I'm 90 or 100, but actually I'm only 33. Uh, he didn't do that. You know, Bevington in his book, he's got this story to show how divine healing and what we believe in, it is not Christian science. And he tells a story that uh, this little girl is asked by her mother, grandmother, whoever, how was your grandfather this morning, Bridget, said a Christian science practitioner to an Irish child. Well, he still has the rheumatism mighty bad, mum, was the reply. Well, you think he has the rheumatism. There is no such thing as rheumatism. Yes, mum, responded the child. A few days later, they met again. Does your grandfather still persist in his delusion that he has the rheumatism? No, mum. The poor man thinks he is dead. We buried him yesterday. So the bottom line is, <laughs> this is not a matter of we deny the reality of what we're looking at, right? <laughs> because Bevington went on to say, divine healing and Christian science are not related in the least. Divine healing is not imaginary. It is not simply the exercise of willpower. It is not mind cure. It is not spiritualism. It is not immunity from death or from sickness as those who believe in divine healing get sick. And when their work is done, they die. It is not mere presumption, nor a disregard for God's will. And he ends it with this, and I like this. He says, this is what divine healing is. It is the direct power of God upon the body. The direct power of the Spirit of God upon the body. That's what divine healing is. What the Bible teaches. 
So here's the thing. The faith of Abraham, the faith the Bible teaches, it doesn't ignore facts. He faced them. Yet it says the facts didn't weaken his faith. He looked at the facts, but then, and this is what faith will do, he looked at someone else. He looked at the face of Jesus, the face of God, and what he is and what he could do, and said, I don't care what the facts say. This is what's going to happen, and I am fully persuaded that what God has promised, he is able to perform. So back to Joshua and Caleb. They didn't deny the facts. Back in Numbers 12, it says this. This is what they said. They said, the land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land which flows with milk and honey. Only they said, do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. They're not denying that these people are intimidating or whatever. They're saying, but we don't have to fear them because God is on our side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Or what, we could say, right? Now, here's the thing. Some people, because they have to battle doubts and circumstances, they think they have no faith. But that is not true. So Abraham, he, we know if you read the account, he had to battle his doubts, didn't he? He had to work his way through that at times. He's, oh, that Ishmael may live. He's struggling and God says, no, no, it's not going to happen that way, Abraham. It's going to be totally supernatural. But here's the thing. We're reading here in Romans 4 that he overcame his doubts and grew strong in faith. In other words, he had to answer them. He answered his doubts. So we're back to the beginning of our message. We have to put on our armor and wage war against the doubt and fear that the devil sends our way. Because doubt and fear... I guarantee you this, it will assail your mind. And that's where the battle is. And if we don't discipline our minds, then the doubt and fear is going to go from your mind and it'll go into your heart. And that is where an evil heart of unbelief is developed. So just because you have to battle doubt and fear in the mind doesn't mean you don't have faith. You just don't want to embrace that doubt and fear in your heart. Jesus says in Mark 11, 22 to 24, have faith in God. Trust in God's faithfulness. For assuredly, he says, I say unto you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed, be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, he says, I say to you, whatever things you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. That's another promise. And that's a promise from the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything he says comes to pass. All right. So the last thing we want to look at, the fifth principle is that Abraham acted on his faith. He acted on his faith. In Genesis 17, God told Abram which means exalted father to change his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And that gave Abraham a chance to act his faith, what was in his heart, publicly. And this is the important thing we need to see, that acting on your faith. So you're in here and you think, man, I've failed trials, whatever. I feel like my my faith is weak or small. Acting on your faith is what will cause weak faith to become strong faith. 
So the Bible clearly teaches that there are degrees of faith. Little faith, strong faith, weak faith, great faith, but all are faith nonetheless, aren't they? Weak faith is still faith. So here's the the illustration. A baby has strength, but not the strength of an adult, not the strength even of a teenager. It can't tighten a screw or lift a chair, unless you're one of the Martin babies. I think they come out lifting chairs, (laughs) big and strong and healthy, right? But how does a baby's, think about this, okay? How does a baby's strength increase? By just laying on its back, being breastfed and burping for 30 years? Yeah, that's not how its strength increased. It's increased by use, isn't it? Isn't that how a child's strength is increased? So if your faith is weak or small, it's not going to be strengthened at all by being dormant or not being used. So said this before, the key is to seek the Lord, meditate on his word, read his word. And then when trouble comes, find a scripture to trust. And I would say, don't begin if you're a baby or you feel like you have weak faith by lifting tables. God will give you building blocks or whatever you can handle to encourage you. I promise you that. So that doesn't mean, though, if you're in a big trial and you just got saved, God, I mean, the centurion, he exercised what Jesus says. He hadn't found that great of faith. No, not in Israel. I mean, that was, as far as I know, that was the first thing he ever trusted God for. But Zacchaeus, guess what he did? He'd rip people off all this money. And his way of acting, his faith was, I'm going to pay everybody back everything I stole. I stole from them. That's what he did. So God will meet you where you're at. I guarantee you that. I can tell you that because the Bible says so. And from my own experience. The, the trials he puts you through, the way he answers prayer when you're first saved, when you first hear the faith message, when you're first spirit filled, is not the same as what he expects you to be able to experience years down the road. Now, some people, they have been an infant lying on their back, not exercising their faith for 10, 15, 30 years. So maybe they are still back here, even though spiritually they ought to be up here. But God will meet you where you're at. It's just we got to do something. Amen. And not just say, oh, what's the use? And this message doesn't work and these promises aren't true and I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to go the world's way no matter what. That's, that's not what we're all about here in this church anyways. Amen? And that, that includes a lot of things. That includes exercising the fruit of the Spirit, relationships, just all kinds of stuff. Not all, it's not all limited to healing and things like that and material provision. But two things determine strong faith. And the first one is our knowledge of God, which comes through the word and experience. And there's no shortcuts to that. But the second way that faith is strengthened is by applying or acting on what we know. Jesus said this, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And so when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus during that great storm, it filled their boat with water. They're in jeopardy and they panic. Master, master, we are perishing and you're sleeping and they are panicking. And it says this, it says, then he arose, rebuked the wind and the raging of the water and they ceased and there was a calm. But he said to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? So he didn't say you don't have any faith. They had faith. But where was it? Jesus asked them where it was. You know where it was? They, here's their faith. They put it in their pocket. And they weren't using it. That's his implication there, right? 
They should have been using that faith. They had knowledge of Jesus and his power. They just weren't applying that knowledge. You got to step out of the boat and start applying the knowledge. And you may start sinking and have to cry, Lord, save me, but he will. But you got to commend Peter for that. He got rebuked too. But at least he got out of the boat, didn't he? Give him that much credit. And the thing is, Jesus rebuked them, but he didn't get rid of them, did he? He might get on our case. He might say, you're sitting in there today. You don't use much faith for anything. There's people not using faith for anything. They let the devil overwhelm them with the smallest things and rush off to get help here, there. You got to start somewhere and he may rebuke you. He's not going to cast you out, but you got to start somewhere, don't you? That's what we have to do. So he wants us to use the faith we have, whether it's weak or whether it's great. And some people are great in some areas and weak in others, you know. It's just the way it is. But we've got to use our faith. So to end this, we're heading, I'm saying we are heading, whether you all realize it or not, I'm telling you, we are heading into perilous times. And like the disciples in the boat, I'm saying they're, they're perilous times spiritually, and I'm thinking it's going to get that way physically too. And I mean, y'all, if you read your Bibles, I'm saying you read the book of Amos, you read what happened in Jeremiah. In the book of Amos, the, northern Israel, they were in a time of unprecedented prosperity. Their, their army was doing great. Jeroboam II was reigning, and it was golden days. And that's when those prophets were coming in there, and they said, I'm going to tell you all something. And they were religious as you can get. He says, I'm going to tell you something, all your praise and all your whatever, all your prosperity, it's going to be taken away. And they didn't want to hear it. Like, what are you doing down here, Amos? We're enjoying life. Everything's, our pockets are full. Life is on. We're having kids. We're moving on. And they said, why don't you just go back down where you came from? He's like, I didn't ask for this job. I'm just trying to tell you what the Lord says. And I'm telling you, but it happened. They didn't want to hear it, but it happened. And that's what's going on now. It's coming Now's the time to get ready. And so now is the time to know, to learn, to exercise faith, to start applying your faith to these exceedingly great and precious promises. We will need them in the days to come. I'm telling you. So Noah trusted in the promise that God gave him. And you talk about nothing to encourage him to keep building that boat for 120 years. But he was a preacher of righteousness. He spoke to the world. But you know what saved him and his family? His obedience and his faithfulness and his holding on to that promise. And that's what I'm saying. That's what I want for my family. You know, I can preach to you all. I can preach to people out in the world. But I want to save my family, me and my family. That's my first responsibility, isn't it? And yours, too. And that's going to come by us being obedient and faithful and walking with the Lord like Noah. Noah being moved with fear, being warned of things to come that nobody had seen. Nobody else believed. They all mocked him. But one day, he was found to be right, wasn't he? That he had heard a word from the Lord. So let's trust in that divine power that's given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, and God says He'll make us partakers of His divine nature if we seek Him and seek to walk with Him. And how does He do that? He says He does that through these exceedingly great and precious promises. Let's not be guilty of neglecting them. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we just thank You once again, Lord, for Your Word and 
and the power that you've expressed that you'll give to us, Lord, to help us through this life. And I just ask, Lord, you'll deal with all of us here that we can tighten our walk and our walk with you and and get back to our first love and putting you first in our lives, Lord. Uh, and that we can be walking in the fullness of the Spirit every day. In that way, Lord, you can speak to us, you can lead us, you can guide us. Our faith will be there, Lord, when we need it in the situations that we face, that we can exercise faith in those promises you've given us. And I just thank you, Lord, that you'll do that work in us here. We thank you, Lord, that you're still speaking to us today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.